0: Did you know that during the Civil War, Lynchburg had its own Florence Nightingale? Her name was Lucy Wilhelmina Ody, and in 1861, she founded what was called the Ladies' Relief Hospital. Lucy Minor and her husband, Captain John Odie, were prominent citizens in Lynchburg. They lived in a mansion on Federal Hill and socialized with Thomas Jefferson at his Bedford County estate, Poplar Forest. By the time the Civil War broke out, John had died and all of the couple's children, seven boys and one girl, had either grown up or were off at college. It was just Lucy Minor and the servants living in the big house at 1020 Federal Street. Lucy Minor was what we'd call an empty nester these days, but she wasn't sitting at home. She was known for her community service and was described as a conscious benefactress to the poor and sick. She was a member of the Methodist Episcopal Church. She co-founded the Female Missionary Society of Lynchburg, and she was a member of the Ladies' Temperance Society, despite the fact that her spiked eggnog was legendary about town. So, when the war started, she gathered her friends and founded the Ladies' Relief Society. Together, they collected things like blankets, boots, towels, and socks for the men who were headed off to war. The Richmond Dispatch even took note of how the ladies of the Hill City were doing their part for the war effort. Richmond Dispatch,
1: Richmond, Virginia, April 22, 1861. The ladies of Lynchburg have volunteered to do any sewing necessary. To equip the troops from that city.
0: They have already furnished quantities of lint and bandages. The ladies of Lynchburg also started nursing injured and sick soldiers in their own homes. This was in addition to military hospitals that were popping up all over the city. In fact, Lynchburg was a hospital town from almost the very start of the Civil War. By war's end, there were more than 30 hospitals in Lynchburg. Why, you might ask? Two words, transportation and tobacco. Lynchburg, one of the richest cities in this country at the time, was a railroad hub. It also had an abundance of tobacco warehouses and other large buildings that could be converted into hospitals. As a bonus, the city was tucked away from most of the battlefields, providing an element of protection. In the late summer of 1861, a writer to the Alabama Beacon described Lynchburg as the perfect place to nurse Confederate soldiers back to health.
2: To those who have passed through Lynchburg, I need say nothing of its location. It's rich and varied mountain scenery, pure, delightful water, its cool mountain breezes, far away from the lowland, consequently, but little infected with epidemics and fatal diseases so common in the eastern or lower part of Virginia, and now the more so from the immense army and crowds attendant together with its immense population, I would at once recommend Lynchburg, Virginia, not only as the most desirable and healthful location for a hospital, but especially sick soldiers
0: during the war. Tens of thousands of soldiers were treated at hospitals in Lynchburg. The names of these hospitals also began appearing in newspapers all over the South. There were Chambers Hospital, College Hospital, Ferguson Hospital, Claytor Hospital, Booker Hospital, Pratt Hospital, and others. But Lucy Minor wanted to open her own hospital, a hospital run by the ladies of the town. She took her idea to Dr. William Otway Owen, chief surgeon in Lynchburg. First, she was treated rudely by a sentinel outside the hospital. Then Dr. Owen rebuffed her, saying, no more women, no more flies. Being shrugged off and compared to pestilence might have made some women give up and go home to their knitting. Little did they know that Lucy Minor Ode was not the sort to give up easily. Without support from local officials, Lucy Minor needed money to open her hospital. So she turned to the ladies of the South in what amounted to a 19th century GoFundMe campaign. One of the newspapers who published her fundraising letter on September 13, 1861, was the Alabama Beacon.
3: The ladies of Lynchburg, Virginia, for several months past, had charge of a large number of the sick and suffering soldiers of the Southern Confederate Army, who they have nursed in their own families and private houses. And having had their sympathies aroused and enlisted by appeals made from the sick and dying men, and finding it impracticable to do what the feelings of humanity dictated they should do, unless they could have access to the sufferers, have been constrained to adopt some plan to provide for their relief. They propose to establish a ladies' hospital chiefly for Southern soldiers, believing that it is their sacred duty to visit the sick and dying, and minister to the wants of their souls and bodies under all circumstances when proper and practicable. And more especially, the sick soldiers of the Confederate States Army who have come to defend us They desire to establish a ladies' southern hospital as a refuge for the sick soldiers where the kind hands of mothers and sisters may supply to fathers, brothers, and sons the comforts of their own far-distant homes. Sisters of the South, we are ready. Will you cooperate with us? Our city has not been behind any other in her care of southern soldiers. Thousands have been uniformed here, and hundreds have been nursed in our families, and still we faint not. We cordially invite the cooperation of our Southern sisters in raising funds for the establishment and support of a Ladies' Southern Hospital in this city. Communications addressed as below will receive prompt attention. Mrs. Lucy W. Odie, President of the Ladies' Hospital, Lynchburg, Virginia.
0: Odie family lore says Lucy Miner also took her case straight up the chain of Confederate command. As the story goes, Lucy Miner got on a packet boat, floated down the James River to Richmond, and met with Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Davis, who was said to be a personal friend of the Odie family, reportedly gave his blessing, and Lucy Miner got her hospital. Regardless of its veracity, it's a nice story and the letter that appeared in the Richmond Enquirer on September 27th, 1861, seems to support this story. It's from the Surgeon General's office in Richmond and addressed to Mrs. Cornelia J.M. Jordan, Secretary of the Ladies' Hospital in Lynchburg.
1: Madam, in close will be found the endorsement of this office, approved by the Secretary of War, on the communication of Mrs. Lucy W. OT concerning the ladies' hospital at Lynchburg to the President. If a certified account is transferred to this office for the rations of each soldier taken care of in the hospital at 22 cents per diem, it will be referred to the Commissary General for payment. In future, you have authority from the Secretary of War to draw rations from the Assistant Commissary in Lynchburg and requisitions for medicine in accordance with the supply table forwarded to me will be approved and supplies transmitted to Lynchburg. Very respectfully, your obedient servant, S.P. Moore, Acting Surgeon General. The Ladies
0: Relief Hospital opened that fall in the old Union Hotel, which stood at 6th and Main Streets. Soon, the women who had once been compared to flies had the best hospital in Lynchburg. It was common knowledge that the worst cases got sent to the ladies' relief hospital, which was said to have the best survival rate of all the hospitals in Lynchburg. About 500 women and some men worked at Lucy Minor's hospital. Some of the people who worked there were slaves, among them Martha Spence Edley, Martha worked for the Spence family who lived on Clay Street, not too far from the hospital. A member of the family later wrote about Martha's work at the hospital.
2: Mrs. Spence sent her personal maid Martha every other morning to help the lady nurses at the hospital at Main and Sixth Streets. There were no disinfectants to be had and all medicines were contraband of war. The stench from ghastly wounds was sickening at all times but especially so after the poorer ventilation at night. Martha helped wash and dress wounds. Intelligent, quick, skillful, witty, and well-mannered was Martha. No doubt she was one of many slaves who helped in this heart-rending work. Another person
0: who worked there was Lucy's daughter-in-law, Molly. Molly lost her first husband, Lucy's son Gaston, early in the war. She worked tirelessly at the Ladies Relief Hospital to relieve the suffering of other husbands, fathers, and brothers.
2: It was our duty, but most of all our privilege, to try our very best to comfort our boys while they were with us. We ladies might bring dainties from home to tempt a soldier's appetite, or we might read aloud some comforting Bible verses to one unable to sleep. Do you know, odd as it seems, Amidst the suffering and pain, more than one romance bloomed in the hospital. I myself nursed a handsome young Swedish colonel who had been shot in the hand in the Battle of Winchester. The doctors feared the worst for it. I heard them whisper, amputation, and determined I wouldn't let that happen. I cleaned and bandaged that hand every single day for three weeks. After the war, he came back to Lynchburg, looking for his little nurse. He thought that after I had saved his hand, he ought to have mine.
0: Most stories didn't end as happily as Molly's. The ladies also wrote letters to families across the South with the sad news that their loved ones had died. One of these letters was written by Lucy Minor on August 18, 1864, to the wife of Confederate soldier, Abraham Hannah.
3: Dear Mrs. Elizabeth A. Hannah, it becomes my painful duty to inform you of the death, a bereavement which you are probably prepared for. Your husband left the shores of time for a blissful eternity on Saturday, the 13th instant. I was with him very often as it is my daily custom to visit the sick and dying, and see that they suffer for nothing. From the time he was wounded at the Battle of Lynchburg three miles from here, he was a patient sufferer. The surgeon and nurse did all that could be done to save his foot. It was amputated, and he bore it well. And the limb did well at first, but when the sloughing began, he gradually wasted away till death relieved him of his sufferings, and his spirit returned to him who gave it. But great is your consolation in the fact that he was ready and willing to depart and be with Christ. We offered to write for you, but he said, you could not accomplish the trip alone. He asked me to write to you. I offered to write that moment. He said, not until I'm gone. He had a minister with him of his church, and was visited by the elders of his church when he was departing. They prayed with him, and my daughter daily sang hymns for him. He said all of his trust was in Jesus. He was not afraid to die, but willing to go. He was a pattern of patience to the last breath. Our nurses, male and female, all loved him for his patient endurance of his suffering. No one who saw him doubted his readiness to go. I can sympathize with you for I too am a widow. I lost my husband just before the war and have lost two sons since. Both of them were in the service from the beginning of the war. I mention it to show you that we all have to suffer afflictions and sorrow here below. But oh, let us look to that happy home in heaven where we shall all meet our loved ones and never part again. Think of that blessed reunion, and there too shall we see the face of our Savior who has given himself for us. Your dear husband's faith was unshaken in Jesus. He never wavered nor doubted, but talked about dying day after day like he was going on a journey. But none but those who feel it can tell anything about it. A widow knows what a widow suffers. I trust that you have made the same blessed Savior, your almighty friend, and therefore I would say to you, look to him as your comforter and chief support, and may he sustain and uphold you and comfort you. I send a lock of his hair enveloped. He was interred at the soldier's burying ground, and the undertaker can always show you his grave. In the prayers of a distant and sympathizing friend, Mrs. Lucy W. Odie.
0: Just like it was for many women of her day, the war was personal for Lucy Minor. She had seven sons in the service of the Confederacy: Kirkwood, Dexter, Van, Peter, Hayes, John, and Gaston, and a son-in-law, John Stuart Walker. Dexter, Van, Gaston, and John Walker never made it home. As for Lucy Minor, the war took its toll on her too. She died in 1866 at age 65. She was buried beside her husband in Lynchburg's Spring Hill Cemetery. In a strange irony of history, her grave remained unmarked until 1995.
4: I'm joined by Greg Starbuck. He's the executive director of Historic Sandusky, which is now owned and operated by the University of Lynchburg. This historic home is a special spot in the city, having served as a union headquarters during the Battle of Lynchburg in 1864. Greg, welcome. Thank you. Thank Thank, you for having me. Thank you for being here. So Greg, describe Lynchburg during the Civil War. What was it like to live here close to the front, close to front lines, and yet far enough away not to really be deeply affected?
5: Sure. Well, let's start a little bit before the Civil War. So, Lynchburg was a commerce center. It was a business center. Um, in eight, the 1850s, you have the Kanawha Canal. You have three railroads that are built that come into Lynchburg. So, Lynchburg is a connecting point for commerce Uh, prior to the Civil War uh, throughout the state of Virginia, even connecting North Carolina to Maryland to Tennessee. So when the war began, that functionality as a transportation, as a hub, served Lynchburg, served the Confederacy very well, because now Lynchburg became a supply communication center uh, during the war and then ultimately became a hospital center. So as a commerce center, as a business center, a transportation hub, and now part of the military complex, you know, soldiers came through Lynchburg, they were mustered here, they uh, organized here, they were sent back to Lynchburg for recuperation if they were wounded or sick. So Lynchburg became even busier. It was a very busy probably noisy place during the war a lot of activity and of course uh, many of the people many of the young men in lynchburg went away to fight in the war and that's when the women assumed new roles in the city
4: so great what was the ladies relief hospital well the ladies relief
5: hospital was a hospital started by women by basically the the women of Lynchburg and they were led by a couple of women uh, most notably Lucy Odie and you have to remember that the hospitals then were were military hospitals and they did not really the the military authorities did not like women interfering or even stepping foot into their hospitals and of course the women wanted to contribute wanted to alleviate suffering wanted to help men and boys recuperate and get healthy. And so Lucy Odie uh, apparently went to Richmond, lobbied with, to President Jefferson Davis to be allowed to set up her own hospital. And apparently she was granted permission. She came back, set up a hospital in what used to be the Union Hotel, um, and that became the ladies' relief hospital.
4: So, talk to us about just the concept of a hospital. I think in the sure. twenty in the twenty first century, we we all have a clear idea of what a hospital is. But things were very different in the nineteenth century. What 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 would people have considered to be a hospital? What was a hospital in the nineteenth century?
5: Well, that's a great question. You know, prior to the Civil War, the, the, the idea of a hospital was was fairly new or non-existent, at least in a place like the city of Lynchburg. Um, if you were sick in the 19th century, before the Civil War, you would receive your medical care at home. Your family would nurse you and care for you. A doctor would make the rounds and come and check up on you. Um, And you really did most of your uh, convalescing at home. There really wasn't a hospital prior to the Civil War. Now, all of a sudden you have tens of thousands of wounded uh, coming into Lynchburg, coming into Richmond, coming into different cities, and you literally have to find space to put these soldiers. And so, they began with Lynchburg College, the Warwick Hotel, and the Union Hotel, and set them up as hospitals in the first year of the war. That was not enough. Uh, By the second year of the war, they added tobacco factories. And the numbers vary, but it was at least a couple dozen warehouse buildings that were converted, commandeered, rented, and used as hospitals throughout the city of Lynchburg. So... The idea of a hospital was fairly novel and it really speaks to the innovations that the Civil War or any war brings to society. In this case, the medical profession, there were many advances,
4: mostly in the administration and management of medical care. So it's, it sounds like what you're describing is that Lynchburg was a, real, it was a real hospital town. I mean, if you've got several dozen buildings and in, in what's a relatively small place acting as hospitals. I would imagine if you're walking the streets of Lynchburg, it's pretty clear to you that this is a, a place for convalescing soldiers, for, you know, wounded soldiers to be healed uh is that your impression of what it was like in lynchburg oh in certainly the, in the if you read some
5: of the accounts um there were times that the number of wounded in the hospitals exceeded the population of lynchburg it was that much of a hospital town and also keep in mind that you know a lot of the soldiers were convalescing and they would get permission to leave the hospital walk around town a little bit to get some fresh air so if you were to go down To the main street or anywhere in downtown Lynchburg you probably would see dozens and dozens of sick and wounded soldiers that were well enough to get out and get some fresh air um, walking around town and interacting with the the local population so yes um, this would have been very recognizable as a military center and particularly a hospital center.
4: And I know Peter Houck's research has shown that, in fact, Lynchburg was the second largest permanent hospital center in the Confederacy.
5: Right. Behind Richmond. So yes, it was very large, and and that owes so much to two things. One is Lynchburg's geographical position uh, in the state, you know, it's in the mountains, it's in a fairly secluded and protected area, you know, Lynchburg never fell, it's the only city, major city. in the state of Virginia that did not fall to Union forces during the war. Um, It's a very protected place. Also, those three railroads going in from the west, going east, and going north out of Lynchburg was very useful to bring in wounded uh, into the city. So, um, and then the second thing that made it very conducive was these warehouses. You know, Lynchburg was a a built-up place downtown was in the 19th century. And you read some of the accounts that people remark, well, Lynchburg's, uh, you know, kind of dirty, and there's houses and buildings built on the edge of hills and that sort of thing. But they always remark at the industriousness of Lynchburg so you have you know a nice compact area with a lot of indoor space being these tobacco factories which are essentially warehouses um, and they're huge and they could house thousands of soldiers
4: so great what is your impression of Mrs. Odie what do you what do you what do you make of her what's her significance in this story
5: well Lucy Odie is a fascinating figure You know, anytime there's war, there's tragedy, there's pathos, there's a lot of emotion, and a lot of inspirational stories, and she might contain all of those elements. Lucy Odie was the wife of John Odie. Uh, He died in 1860, right at the beginning of the war, or right before the war began. And so she was a widow, but she was a mother. Uh, She had numerous children, Five died in childbirth. She had eight more children that survived into adulthood. Seven boys, one daughter. All seven of the boys served in the Confederate Army. So try to imagine if you sent, you know, your son away to war. It's bad enough to send one son away. Try to imagine sending seven sons away. So I'm sure the stress on her was... um, pretty immense. And so maybe this maternal instinct or this instinct to try to affect change or make an improvement or get involved uh, is what drove her to really lead this effort to Start the Ladies' Relief Hospital. She seems like she was a very caring and sympathetic person. There were a couple of cases documented where she literally held a soldier in her arms as he died his last breath. Some soldier from some faraway place like Alabama or Louisiana, and almost as a, as a
4: surrogate mother, almost
5: basically you know, as a surrogate mother. So. Um, uh, you know, people look to the past for stories of inspiration and uh, education, and, and she, I think, is one of those stories. Uh, you try to look for what good maybe came out of the war. Some good did, but there was a lot of tragedy and a lot of loss. Um, she's probably one of those stories in helping change the face of the hospital sphere, at least here in Lynchburg, but also helping care for so many soldiers and it got to a point that her hospital and her ladies gave such good care that the surgeons were very open to the idea of sending the worst cases to her hospital because they knew they would get really good care and had a higher survivability rate
4: so greg are there any misconceptions do you feel like out there about lynchburg and the civil war anything that you feel like we're learning is maybe not quite as accurate as we thought, or it's just something people don't know about Lynchburg in the Civil War?
5: Well, some of the things I find fascinating about Lynchburg, about the time of the Civil War, especially just prior, was um, finding out that uh, John Wilkes Booth, you know, he was a stage actor and actually performed here in Lynchburg several times in 1858 and 1859 in what was then called Dudley Hall, which was located right where our city hall is located. And also in Dudley Hall, just prior to the war, um, Edward Everett came and gave a speech. And, of course, Everett was a northern politician, educator, clergyman. He was the man who gave uh, the address before the Gettysburg Address up there in the cemetery, Uh, the Gettysburg Address being Lincoln's most famous speech, probably. And he gave a speech in Dudley Hall just prior to the war advocating for union, to keep the union together, to keep the country of George Washington, that he found it, keep it as one, and was actually met with a fairly enthusiastic reaction. So I find it fascinating, some of the notable people who have come through Lynchburg and left a small mark on it.
4: And it says a lot to me that in the 1860 presidential election, Lynchburg voted for the unionist candidate, John Bell, who I think his party was the Constitutional Union Party. Uh, You tend to think, well, we fought for the Confederacy. We're a southern state. We're a southern town. So we must we must have been all in like you know, Charleston, South Carolina. But in fact, Lynchburg was a different place. We had different attitudes about it.
5: Well, exactly. You know, what tempers Virginia's attitude about the war and secession is the fact that we're right next to the North. It's easy for South Carolina to bluster and saddle, rattle sabers. But Virginia has got a little more of a moderate opinion because it is right next to what might be the enemy. And also, um, it's just not a deep South, South, state you know it doesn't have really the cotton plantations the rice plantations that the deep south has and so Virginia was very moderate and what seems to have been the tipping point was when um, Abraham Lincoln called for 75,000 soldiers to enlist to put down the insurrection, if you will, of, that was taking place in the South. And, and that was a saber rattling that most Southern politicians and states, you know, so well, that's it. We're, we're done. And we're, we're out. And, and that was basically uh, what happened to George C. Hutter who owns Sandusky. He was a union officer in Charleston. Um, Lakin called up the volunteers to uh, put down the South and, just three or four days later he resigned and came back to Virginia and that was true of so many people back then.
4: Yeah, things really are not cut and dry sometimes in history and it's not always black or white. There's a whole spectrum of shades of gray there.
5: There is. I mean, when you first learn history, the simple version, you do have to kind of put things in boxes and say, well, you know, was he for the north or for the south or, you know, this or that? Was it black? Was it white? But you do find that history is full of mitigating factors, full of gray areas, full of what-ifs. And that's, I think, what makes history so fascinating. And also, you know, we don't know everything that we want to know. There's still more things to be discovered. Um, There's still more research to be done. There's still more... I'm still surprised at how many times that some family papers will come out of the woodwork that gives us new and more information. And sometimes we have to go back and correct the old information. And, you know, one of the greatest mysteries, which uh, I'm going to have some of our students look at really hard, was this notion that Lucy Odie had a commission, an actual commission in the Confederate Army as a captain. And, of course, that was true of Sally Tompkins of Richmond. Mm-hmm. And there's many, the folklore is that she also, that Lucy Odie had a commission, Um, and unfortunately all of her papers uh, burned when her house caught on fire, and so all the papers and records of the Ladies Relief Hospital, anything dealing with Lucy went up in flames. Um, But there are a few places that we can maybe go look and maybe find more evidence hopefully maybe not ever conclusively and the whole idea of being a captain was basically to allow for sally Tompkins. it allowed her um, more latitude in the hospitals allowed her for instance to requisition medical supplies and medicine without having to chase down a surgeon on horseback all through richmond to get a signature she could instead requisition those supplies herself and and I I don't see that as being improbable with Lucy, you know, Uh, but we we don't know. And so we we may never know, but that's one of those great mysteries. But a lot of people still hang on to the idea that she was a captain. Mm -hmm. You know, once a good story gets started, sometimes it's hard to stop it.
4: Well, and even if she turns out she wasn't ever really commissioned, she functioned as a commissioned captain uh, to to be able to run this hospital.
5: I think I think one of her nicknames was captain. You know, they just call it a captain, which, you know, has, of course, a military connotation, but also just has uh, an authority figure like captain of a ship or just, you know, captain of a project or endeavor. So, Hmm. um, yeah, she was a a incredible uh, person, I think.
4: Thank you for being here. I really appreciate your time and sharing your expertise. It's my
5: pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: American Evolution, Virginia to America, 1619 to 2019 celebrates the 400-year history of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Through public events, legacy projects, and initiatives like this podcast, American Evolution commemorates the people and historical events that occurred in Virginia and continue to shape who we are in the Commonwealth today. For more information about the American Evolution celebration, visit AmericanEvolution2019.com. To learn more about the Little Did They Know podcast and for photos, extras, and other information relating to today's episode, visit LittleDidTheyKnow.com.